God, that if there are truths spoken this morning that are from you, they would be etched upon our hearts for all of eternity. We pray that you would fill in the gaps of my imperfection. And ultimately, Lord, that the name of Jesus would be magnified and glorified, not only this morning with this sermon, Lord, and and what we learn, but ultimately in our lives, Jesus. We love you. We give honor to you. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. So Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 30 is what we're going to be going through. And the title of this sermon is called Empty Lamps and Hidden Treasure. Empty Lamps and Hidden Treasure. And we have spoken on the last couple weeks um, about going through Jesus' words on the end times, right? And the end times are very confusing to some of us, right? The end times are very just kind of, because, you know, some stuff is metaphor, some stuff is literal, some stuff has happened already, some stuff hasn't happened yet. And so we get very wrapped up in the end times sometimes. And, and, and what we've been speaking about is when he will return, yes, but also in what manner we are to live as Christ followers until he returns. Right? And we ended last week in, in chapter 24, and Dominic went through something very interesting where we talked about how this master, he came back to see one of his servants faithfully feeding people, right? He was doing his job, he was faithfully feeding the people that need to be fed. But he also came back to a lawless servant, a lawless servant who lived as though the master was never actually coming back, right? He was, he was being abusive to the other people. He was squandering the master's resources. And we saw last week as Jesus exhorted that until Jesus returns, we must be waiting as humble servants in the household of God. Amen? Humble servants in the household of God living on mission, awake, and aware of what he's doing around our lives. And we are called to be absolutely faithful in our context. So, so not just in this, in this metaphorical moment of, okay, Jesus might come back at this time, Jesus might come back at this time, but leaning on the hope of Jesus' return, but not living immobilized, right? Right? Not living immobilized like we need to bunker down and weather the storm until he returns, right? That there's this call to faithfulness, actively loving people around us. Actively pursuing the will of God in our own context. And Jesus also gives a serious warning to people as well. He does not give this sentimental cat poster, right? Like, oh, just hang in there, you know what I mean? He, he's not giving us these sentimental just uh, pleasantry saying, oh, don't worry about it, just hang tight until I get back. There's a consequence to those that live as though their master will never return, right? There's a consequence to people being ignorant of the fact that Jesus is returning and living as though he will never return. And at the end of chapter 24, we saw that there was this story of a master coming earlier than expected. And now we're going to be picking up in chapter 25 where he's actually showing up later than expected, right? So chapter 25, verses 1 through 13, we're going to get through a bigger chunk, but we're just going to kind of take this parable by parable here. I'll be uh, reading through the ESV. It's up here on the screen. Matthew chapter 25, verse 1 through 13. Jesus says this, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. 
For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him into the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, and this is important, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day or the hour. So Jesus sets the stage here. He's trying to tell a story about the kingdom of God and Christ's return. Right? He sets the stage here saying that there's a story of these ten virgins. And virgins back then was just a word for an, a, a young and unmarried woman. Right? A young and unmarried woman. They were all bridesmaids in a wedding. Right? We all know how important it is to be a bridesmaid. Right? And so there's probably just this excitement welling up in these women. And back in those days, the wedding was preceded by a parade, right? It was preceded by a parade. And actually, back then, weddings were up to like 10 days long. It's pretty insane, right? They were up to like 10 days long. For those of you who have paid for a wedding, right, that's insanity to me, right? For those of you that have even been in a wedding, I don't want my wedding to last 10 days, right? But, but the whole thing kicked off with a parade, right? And it was the bridesmaid's job, and it was their only job, to kind of usher in the groom holding lamps in their hands and going throughout the city, right? Because it would typically, the feast would typically happen in the evening, right? The bridesmaids would kind of surround the groom, they would all have lamps, and they would walk around the city just proclaiming the happy marriage that's about to unfold or has already unfolded, and then they would go into the marriage feast. And this was their only job, their only job was to wait for the, groom, for the groom and then parade him in, right? And some of the bridesmaids were really smart. They said, hey, we ought to be prepared for anything, right? We ought to be prepared for anything. No matter when the bridegroom comes out, we're going to make sure that we are going to have lamps so that no matter what, we'll be able to usher him in. The other five bridesmaids, the other half, assumed that the groom would be ready on their own time, Right? They just assumed, well, the groom is naturally just going to show up whenever I show up. And there's a lot of egocentrism to that, right? Now, all of these bridesmaids were dressed and ready and excited, probably, right? Super excited for the parade to be showcased around the city. Perhaps for some of these bridesmaids, it was really important for them to be seen at this wedding, for them to be noticed and to feel important. And all of these bridesmaids, they were dressed and ready for the wedding, but ultimately, only half of them were actually prepared. All ten bridesmaids, ready in appearance, but practically, only half of them actually ready. Right? Only half of them actually prepared. And it was not the fact that they were asleep. I want to make that very clear. You know, they're all asleep and then they're woken up by the bridegroom. And the fact that they were asleep is supposed to really denote this fact that the bridegroom can come at any time and he's going to come at a, a, a surprise, right? And that everyone is surprised. The, bride, uh, the, the 
bridesmaids that were prepared, the bridesmaids that weren't. They were all very surprised, but some were prepared and some weren't. What made them unprepared was not the fact that they were asleep, but the fact that they had no oil in their lamps. No oil in their lamps. What the bridesmaids lacked was the oil. They lacked oil, the fuel that would make the lamp burn. Jesus said to those who follow and trust in him that he is the light of the world and they are the light of the world. And we are a light of the world because we have the oil of God's spirit that is causing that fire and that light to burn, right? He is the fuel that awakens our spirits to be alive. And what these bridesmaids lacked there was the fuel for that fire. Jesus is talking about the person who has not been made alive by the Holy Spirit. The person who has not been born again. And so the bridegroom is coming, right? The bridegroom is coming, and he's getting closer. And these foolish bridesmaids are now all of a sudden, oh no, right? I don't know if any of you have been a part of a wedding in which something goes awry, right? And it's one thing to be a part of a wedding where it goes awry, but it's another thing to be a part of a wedding where it goes awry because of you, right? And so you could just imagine the hearts fluttering in these bridesmaids' hearts where they're like, oh no, we have no oil. Our one job (laughs) we haven't done. And so what do they do? Out of desperation, being frantic, what do they do? They ask to borrow some of the oil from others. But ultimately, that was impossible. Listen, I want this to be made clear. I can benefit greatly from the Holy Spirit working in you. I could be blessed by the gifts of the Spirit that, are, that you use, by the fruit of the Spirit in your lives, by the words that you have to say, by your hospitality, by your encouraging presence. I can be blessed by all of these things in you. I can benefit from your faith, and you could benefit from mine. But I cannot borrow it. I need my own faith my own relationship with the Holy Spirit. I need my own oil. The bridesmaids put on, put us, they, they, they put us kind of in, into this brutal reality, right? The, the, frank, the franticness of this story and the intensity of these bridesmaids realizing that they have no oil and they can't borrow the oil from those who have been prepared, those who do have this burning flame, they realize that they can't borrow it and they, they make us come face to face with this reality that there will come a time, my friends, when it's too late. There will come a time when it's too late. Too late to really dive deeper. Too late to actually take it seriously. Too late to respond to the call of God to enter into a relationship with Him. That there is this reality and this fact that at one point, being on the fence and not choosing Jesus, it'll be too late. And when that time comes, you will not be able to rely on the faith of others. I will not be able to rely on the faith of my wife, on the faith of my parents, 
nor will you be able to rely on the faith of your church or on the faith of your spouse or on the faith of your parents or children or family members. And this this makes me ask this question of myself, and I pray that we all ask this question this morning. Are you relying on the Holy Spirit's work in the lives of others? Is your faith dependent possibly on another person? Maybe it's a spouse, a parent. Maybe, maybe your faith is dependent on a specific circumstance, a specific table set before you that is, that is posh and comfortable. Is your faith dependent on a specific stage in life or a specific status in life or maybe financial comfortability? Is your faith dependent on the faithfulness of this church? Do you find yourself feeling that you are faithful because you're a part of a church that's faithful? Do you find yourself relying on the gifts of the preaching of other people or the hospitality of your community groups? And it is interesting that Jesus, he really does, he's very purposeful when he uses oil as an example of unpreparedness. How these people don't have oils in their lamps because all throughout the Bible, oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Oil is always a pointing of God in the presence of the Holy Spirit in people's lives. In Ephesians chapter 1, actually, verse 13 through 14, it says this, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it, to the praise of his To hear the truth, to receive the gospel, and to believe in Jesus results in God giving us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in our lives is almost like this this stamp. You ever, you know, for those of you that still go to the library, right? The the library, they, they stamp every book, right? They stamp every book saying, property of the library, right? And, and, and that's, almost, that's almost kind of how the Holy Spirit, one of the ways the Holy Spirit, how he operates in our lives is that it's this stamp, like property of God. And the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is further proof of God's presence in our lives. And the original language, that's what it likens to. It likens it to this seal, right? That God is saying, hey, this is my purchased possession, And the Holy Spirit is a symbol of that until I come and take it back for myself, right? That's the Holy Spirit in our lives. He seals us and continually brings us into the presence of God to further and foster and grow our relationship with him. And if you have rejected the gospel, or if you have not allowed it to have this full effect on your soul, that means that the Holy Spirit does not dwell in you. And that there's no oil in your lamp. And that's the big point of this, right? The big point of it, we want oil in our lamps. We're all going to be caught off guard by Jesus' return. You know that, right? I hope we know that by now. (laughs) There's no one that's going to be said, called it, right? Nailed it, right? There's all of these billboards and stuff that will say the exact time and hour guaranteed. We'll all be like, totally didn't see that coming, right? We're all going to be prepared, I mean, we're all going to be caught off guard, but not all of us are going to be prepared. And the Holy Spirit and his work in our lives is that preparedness. Your lamp may look good, though. And that's the thing, right? We all have, like, some of us have pretty shiny lamps, huh? 
Like, we have pretty shiny lamps. Maybe it's like a big torch, right? Maybe you're really high-tech and it's a flashlight, right? There's a lot of us, right, that we, we have lamps. And some of you may be dressed for the wedding. You have your bridesmaid's gown, really nice. You've taken plenty of selfies in it. Everyone says you're good. You may have your torch, everything, but there's no oil. You don't have the Holy Spirit. You may have your Bible. You may have your church clothes on. You may know all of the right answers about Jesus. And you have all the right answers to all of the Sunday school questions. You have your lamp, but there's no oil. Your lamp is empty. When we are surrounded by the Christian culture, it is profoundly easy to have the words you say about Jesus be billions of miles away from the actual effect Jesus is having on your life. No oil in your lamp. And your lack of relationship with God will result in being shut out from the wedding. What the bridesmaids ultimately lacked was a relationship with the groom. And this is, this is something that's really important for all of us. What the bridesmaids lacked was a relationship with the groom. Their unpreparedness, without having any oil in their lamps, made them unavailable for the procession, right? It made them unavailable for this, therefore making them unavailable to develop this relationship with the bridegroom. When they had to go and find oil for themselves, the parade still went. They didn't stop for these bridesmaids that were unprepared. They had to take off. The oil in the lamps provided these bridesmaids the opportunity to interact with the groom, to go on a parade with him, to go into the wedding feast with him, to enjoy life with him, to feed and, 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 and to enjoy everything that was happening around them. And it wasn't that these bridesmaids that had no oil just simply missed out on not being a part of the wedding or they didn't get to be seen or they didn't get to be recognized. They were unable to enter into the joyful feast of the wedding. And when they ultimately knocked on the door and said, let us in, let us in. The groom said, I don't know you. We, we haven't had a relationship with one another. And, and, and one of the harshest realities that I think that I have to face and that I, I hope that some of us face this morning is that, wow, is it possible to be dressed for the wedding? To anticipate the wedding? To have everything prepared almost and still not be able to get in? And it's a harsh reality, but it's, it's so loving of Jesus to mention this to us. Saying that, hey, not everyone that says, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. What we do with the gospel matters. How we receive the gospel actually matters. Not just playing the part, not just sitting in the pews, not just singing the songs, but how we allow the Holy Spirit to dwell in us actually matters. And theological points aside or whatever certain bent you have as far as how you like church structure to be, there's ultimately going to be this one question, do you know Jesus? And does he know you? That's kind of the big part, huh? 
right? Because that, that's why the bridesmaids weren't allowed into the wedding. It wasn't that they didn't know the bridegroom. They knew plenty of facts about him. They had to prepare for the wedding. They, they were excited for the wedding. They knew about the groom, but the groom didn't know them. There's this profound truth of, of allowing ourselves to be known by God that's important, right? Allowing him in to know us. And Jesus actually continues this point. Only he shifts, the, uh, he shifts the emphasis on readiness to faithfulness, right? So the bridesmaids weren't ready, right? They weren't prepared. And now we're going to shift to another parable where the servants aren't necessarily faithful, right? And so Matthew 25, verse 14, we're going to pick it back up. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. And he who had received the one talent went, dug in the ground, and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing the five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had two talents came forward, saying, Master, You delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had received one talent came forward saying, master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I scattered no seed. Then you, should, then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he, who will, ha- and he will have an abundance But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, in a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is gnarly, huh? That's gnarly. That's really crazy. And and, and Jesus, he paints yet another picture of these people who are missing out, right? Or who could possibly miss out. And Jesus paints us this picture of, of these three servants, right? And, and, and this master gives them money to take care of while he's gone. One servant was given five talents. The other servant was given two talents. And one servant was given one talent, right? And so he gives all of these people talents according to their own abilities, according to what he feels like they, you know, they can handle as far as investment is concerned, right? And, and, and a talent is actually interesting, guys. A talent is, about, is worth about 6,000 denarii. And I know you guys do most of your currency in denarii, right? 6,000 denarii, which is about equivalent to about $1,200 today, right? $1,200. But even crazier than that... It, it was more than a servant would actually make in 20 years of wages, actually. 
So one talent was more than 20 years of income for a typical servant back then. That's like, that's an insane amount, isn't it? Right? 20 years. To put that in perspective, the average household income in Ventura is around $77,000 a year. Let's just lowball that for the sake of math and say $70,000 a year, right? Um, and let's take that annual income, $70,000 a year, multiply it by 20 years, that's $1.4 million. So I want you to picture, just let's, let's, let's put this in our heads. Your boss comes up to you and says, hey, um, I'm going on vacation. Uh, I don't know when I'll be back. I'll, you know, here's that $1.4 million. Can you do something with that? <laughs> for some of you, you're like, oh, I got that. Yeah. For, for, for me, I, I would freak out, right? <laughs> $1.4 million, my boss is saying, hey, here, take this. Do something. You know, whatever, right? And, and this could be an incre- a crazy amount of pressure for some people, right? And, and that's a lot of money to take care of. That's a lot of money to be entrusted to. That, and, and Jesus purposefully exaggerates these numbers. He purposefully exaggerates these numbers to emphasize just how precious and how generous of a responsibility he was giving, even the person with one talent, right? Even the person with one talent, he was being incredibly trustful, just saying, hey, I'm entrusting this to you, to be, you to be a steward faithfully of this. I believe in you, right? But notice here that never once was this about the money that the servants had accumulated. Never once was this about the money that they had accumulated. The person with five talents, he got five talents more, way more money than the person with two talents that invested, right? The person with two talents got two talents more. So one person ended with 10 talents. The other person ended with four talents. But both of them, both of them got the reward. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master, right? Enter into the joy of your master. So it was never about the money that was accumulated, but about their faithful stewardship of what had been given them. One servant technically made more money than the other, yet their faithfulness was counted the same. This reveals something about the heart of God, doesn't it? This reveals something about the heart of God that he measures according to being a good and faithful servant, not a more talented and fruitful servant. Um, I'm, I'm going to tell you guys just about the worst sermon I've ever heard, right? Um, wasn't here at reality. <laughs> This is the worst sermon I have ever heard in my life, right? And it, 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 not only was it theologically accurate, but it was fear-mongering, and it was just, it was just an overall bad ser- uh, sermon. And I was sitting in the back, and it was kind of at this like, special service that was being held at this one church. And the pastor, he had gone about just uh, talking about how we have to combat the evils um, that, are, that are permeating through our society, which is totally true. We take the sword of the Spirit. We don't war against flesh and blood, but about powers and principalities and, and you know, the creatures of the air, right? You know, we're, we're supposed to be faithful in making sure that evil is, is surrounded by the gospel, right? And, 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 and choked out by the gospel. But his huge crescendo, his huge, like, major point at the end of the sermon was, you don't want to be next to David. You don't want to be next to Moses. You don't want to be next to Gideon at the end in heaven and hear all of their wonderful exploits, and what they've done, how Moses parted the seas, how David defeated Goliath, how Gideon led an army of 300 against thousands, and here you are with nothing to show and nothing to compare to them. I'm like, whoa. 
yeah, my, my little acts of faithfulness every day, I guess, yeah, they, they never really compare to killing a giant, right, or leading an army. But that pastor had profound, a profoundly inaccurate picture of what heaven means. And, and these two servants that were faithful exemplify that. That one servant, technically, his, his fruit or, or the amount that he accomplished was more, but his faithfulness was counted equal to the person who had achieved accumulating four talents. The reward in heaven, and I want, I want to make this so clear, because it says that we are going to get crowns in heaven, right? But do you know that it also says that we are going to take those crowns and then lay them at the feet of Jesus? That whatever exploits or whatever things we accumulate over time, they're all to honor Jesus anyways. And the reward of heaven is not that I get to look Moses in the face and say, hey, but I preached that one time at reality, right? That's not the point of heaven. We're not going to be, none of us are going to be paying attention to one another, I think, even. We're just going to, Jesus is right there, right? And, and, and listen, the reward for these servants was, hey, listen, well done. Actually, that money that you kept, right, that money that you accumulated, here it is. And in fact, I'm giving you a promotion. And now you get to be master over this unfaithful servant, right? There's no promotion in that. The reward for this servant was, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Notice how even at the end, the reward for the faithful servant was that he got to enter into the joy of his master. Enter into the joy of his Lord in some translations. That we are not working and we are not working and being about the gospel of Jesus so that we can compare and contrast our gifts or our exploits with one another. We do it because one day we'll get to bring them before the Lord and get to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, and enter into the joy of our Lord. God has given us all a measure of gifts, talents, positions. But at the end, all of our talents are going to be given back to God anyways. The wonderful reality of heaven is that we get to be in the joy of our master. It says that in his presence is the fullness of joy. It's the fullness of joy. Before we continue to the unfaithful servant, I want us to realize two things. I want us to take note of two things. One is we will give an account of our lives and what we did with the gospel. That is absolutely true. And what we did with the gifts that God gave us, but ultimately, what we did with the gospel, right? God has given us all a different measure of talents, right? You know, I know some doctors, those are like five-talent dudes, right? That, like, spend all of their free time, like, in the Amazon, like, putting people's heads back on, right? Like, that's, that's, a, that's like a five-talent dude if I've ever seen one, right? Like, and, and, but, but we've all been given a different measure, and it's not like God is going to say, well, the doctor did this in the Amazon, or, well, the televangelist did this. He, he, he's not going to be comparing like that, but we will, do not be mistaken, we will be given account of what, what we have been entrusted. Your spouse, your family, your job, your neighbors, you are going to give an account for all of these things that God has, been, has put in front of you. 
We will, we will give an account. That is, that is absolutely for sure. But the second thing I need us to really take note of and realize is that God is in the business of bringing us into his joy. That he, he, he's not, when he's, when he's interacting with his, his servants, it's not like he's giving them a task that is unaccomplishable. And that he wants them to just simply work, buckle down, also that he can just give them more responsibility to make them more miserable. The ultimate point of this is that he wants them to experience a life of faithfulness that causes them to enter into the joy of the Lord. This means that it isn't about begrudgingly, begrudgingly obeying Jesus because you don't want to be uninvited to the wedding feast, or you don't want the door shut on you, or you don't want to go to hell. I'll give you this example. A young, unmarried person comes up to me. I'm married. Uh, uh, an unmarried person, you know, comes up to me and says, hey man, like, I've I just been thinking about maybe proposing to my girlfriend, and, you know, just, w- would you tell me what marriage is like? What if I just said, you know what? It's all about faithfulness. You know, whether I hate to wake up in the morning or love to wake up in the morning, I need to be consistent. You know, and, and, and no matter what, I, I need to be disciplined. I need to do the job that God has given me, and I need to work hard because that's what marriage is about. It's about working hard and not doing anything wrong. Saying, yes, dear, serving her, going forward like a soldier, Right? That guy's going to be like, I don't know if I'm going to propose to my girlfriend anymore. (laughs) Or if I say to him, my wife and the life with her is filled with struggle, but a struggle in a way that we're struggling to love each other in the best way possible. And that I'm so imperfect, but she still decides to have patience and love me and I to her. And that she has full power and authority because of how much I love her. She can control me, but she chooses not to. And we walk through this life in our imperfections, trying to sanctify one another, supporting one another, and and joyfully and lovingly just wanting to pursue and romance each other in love. How much better does that sound? How much better does that marriage sound? This is the type of faithfulness God wants. The type of faithfulness that says enter into the joy. Not enter into the work, not enter into the, the, the kind of the militia of just going forward faithfully, head down like a soldier. It's this enter into the joy of your master. And God is in the business of offering joy to us. And our faithfulness comes from that place of desiring to enter into the joy of your master. And that's what the third servant is lacking. We see here, and also he who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. And his master said to him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him with the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even that, will, that he has will be taken away and cast worthless servant into the outer darkness. 
In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, the solution for this servant was to take the spectacular talent that was given to him and bury it. And notice here how he doesn't even seem to be typically, you know, very, like, even remorseful about this fact, right? He doesn't even seem to be very remorseful. He's like, hey, at least I didn't gamble it away. This is a lot of money. At least I didn't lose it. The master, however, gets severe in his language. He gets very severe in his language, and there's a consequence attached to it. You wicked and slothful servant, he responds. This sounds like I can imagine the servant kind of being tanked back by that, right? Being surprised by his master's response. What? I didn't lose the money. Having given his servant a wonderful opportunity to be faithful, he comes back to see that this servant that he had given so much to buried his opportunity. To do nothing is something. Hosea 8, 7 actually says this about the people of Israel. He says, God says this, For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. That's a good tattoo idea, right? They sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. And this is, this is all meant for, for God to say, Listen, you think that by doing nothing... That you'll just simply stay in this moral neutrality, right? That by doing nothing, you'll receive nothing in return, and that's fine. Rather, God says, hey, by doing nothing, you are heading towards destruction. Doing nothing is something. The master is severe. You may not be antagonistic towards Jesus. In fact, you may love coming to church and learning about him. You may love what religion has done for your family or for your kids. Maybe your kids are more well-behaved because they go to Sunday service or VBS. You may, just, you, you, you may have just like gone to church your whole life, and this is kind of your family culture, and this is what you've grown up in. And you're not necessarily antagonistic towards Jesus or don't like Jesus, and maybe it's fear or bitterness or laziness or selfishness. I don't know what it is, but you live your life hearing the gospel but doing nothing in response to it. This servant's sin was similar to the bridesmaids who had no oil. They were given an opportunity to enter 